0: 17th century French physicist and theologian, Blaise Pascal, once said, not only do we not know God except through Jesus Christ, we do not even know ourselves except through Jesus Christ. This life is a precious gift that we've been given. But to be clear, it is a gift. Life on this earth is not a right that is owed to us, it is not guaranteed. And by the way, it's not something that was ever meant to bring us ultimate satisfaction. You understand, this life was never meant to satisfy you. And yet at the same time, every single one of us is searching for, yearning for satisfaction and fulfillment, which sounds like a great dilemma because that's exactly what it is. Which is why there's another life, a life after this life that is guaranteed to those who are in Christ. A life that is promised and will provide ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment that every single one of us is looking for. And of course, if you're a Christian, uh, then you probably already know all of that which is what makes it all the more perplexing that so many of us Christians today continue to search in this life for something that can only be found in the next. Because this world is not our home, right? It's not meant to be, which is why the author of Hebrews wrote here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 13:14, "This world, in its present state, is a temporary location that we're living in." And so the idea that you can somehow live your best life now well, that's a cruel joke. You're telling me, "This is as good as it gets." No way. Now listen, I don't care how good your life is, no matter how good it may be, it will never be as good as what is coming next for those who are in Christ, which is why the Apostle Paul said for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain, Philippians 121, because no matter how good this may be, what's coming next is infinitely better. So, Does that mean then that we should all just resign ourselves to a life of misery and disappointment while we're here on this earth? Of course not. No, there certainly is joy and love and a type of fulfillment and satisfaction to be had in the here and now. But the point is, all of that is merely a dim reflection of what is to come. And so as good or as difficult as this life may be, we have a hope for the future that cannot be dimmed by anything in this world. That's why Paul said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It's not the same now as it's going to be then. Okay. The point is, yes, we should make the most of, of this life without a doubt. But the reason we make the most out of this life is because of the life that is yet to come. The only way to make the most out of this life is through Jesus Christ, as Pascal said. There's no understanding of God. There's no understanding of this life. There is not even an understanding of ourselves apart from Christ. Oswald Chambers said it this way: The man or woman who does not know God, uh, who does not know God, demands an infinite satisfaction from other human beings which they cannot give. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. It springs from this one thing: the human heart must have satisfaction, but there's only one being who can satisfy the last abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, through Christ, we can live this life to our absolute potential, knowing that no matter what happens along the way, we have a future hope, a future life that this life pales in comparison to. Honestly, it's a win-win when your focus is on what is yet to come, because everything you experience now, the good and the bad, is then understood and seen as serving that end, the, the life that comes after this life. But listen, if you live like this is all that there is, which I believe is what most Christians do today, then you're going to struggle your entire lifetime on this earth with dissatisfaction and unmet expectations and even hopelessness at points along the way as you progressively realize that not everything you desire in this life is going to be fulfilled in this life. It's not, which we should actually be okay with because this life was never meant to satisfy us. But the truth is we tend to not be okay with that. Not most of us. We despair over needs in this life that can only be met in the next. And so look, uh, the truth of the matter is for most of us when we're unhappy or feeling dissatisfied or unfulfilled, we don't actually need our lives to change. We need our perspective to change which is what we're going to see in the life of Ruth as we continue our sermon series, working our way through her story, where Ruth had more reason to despair, given her life up to this point, than anyone else in the story. And yet she understood that her life wasn't just about her. In fact, it was about something much bigger than her, something that she was simply one part of. Now, uh, she was a very important part of that story, mind you, but a part of something bigger than just her own personal needs and immediate desires in this life. And listen, the same thing can be said of you. Your life is one part of a much larger story it is a very important part of the story yes but it's only one part of something that transcends your personal needs and your personal desires at any given point along the way and I'm telling you once you gain that perspective and begin to live this life for what it is a temporary journey on the way to ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment for all of eternity then your perspective on this life Changes drastically, which in turn will drastically change everything else about how you live this life, about how you uh, about how you treat other people, about how you treat yourself, about how you treat everything that has been given to you when you understand that it 's all a gift it 's all a gift that you 're supposed to give away during your very short time that you 're here, knowing that the satisfaction and fulfillment that you 're looking for ultimately. That all comes later after this life. Once you get that, I'm telling you this life takes on a whole new meaning and what satisfies and fulfills you will actually change because this life was never meant to satisfy you anyway. Only Jesus can do that and yet most of us live as if the meaning of this life is our personal satisfaction and fulfillment while we're here. Right? And the great irony in that is the fact that as long as your focus in this life is on your own satisfaction and fulfillment, then you will never be satisfied or fulfilled. Because true satisfaction and fulfillment can only be found in someone who transcends this world and our brief time in it. And of course, again, that's Jesus Christ alone. You see, the meaning of life is not this life, it's the next. It's being redeemed from this life to a better life and that eternal, which is what the story of Ruth is all about, as she represents so powerfully the very picture of every one of us who were lost in this life without any hope beyond it until someone came along and saved us. And yet it's Ruth's perspective about her life all along the way that is so remarkable in what we stand to learn so much from about the true meaning of this life. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last week at Ruth chapter 3 and see what she has to teach us about the meaning of this life and how that should affect the way we're living it. We'll begin with the first five verses, Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So as the scene opens up Naomi suggests to Ruth that there may be a way for her to find a better life for herself and therefore by default uh, for Naomi as well. If you've been following this series you know these are two widows who are basically destitute, if not for Ruth, going and gleaning in Boaz's field, picking up the scraps from the harvesters to keep them alive. And so Naomi's looking at this whole situation, and she's come up with the plan. Remember, uh, life for a childless widow in ancient Palestine was precarious at best, typically without much hope for any future. But Ruth has developed a warm friendship with Boaz while laboring in his fields. And you'll remember from last week that Naomi had pointed out to Ruth that Boaz was a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, which means Boaz was a family redeemer or kinsman. It's the ancient word ga'al, which means Boaz was much more than just a family relation. He was one of the leaders of the family who was actually able to redeem another from their clan, who had been widowed, according to the the Leveret marriage laws of ancient Hebrew culture at the time, which said if a woman's husband died before she could bear children by him, then it was the duty, the requirement of the dead man's brother or one of the kinsmen redeemers to bear children by her in order to continue the dead brother's line, which again is stipulated in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, effectively redeeming the family line that would otherwise be lost by a childless widow. And obviously, Naomi understands all of that. And so when she says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you, is not Boaz our relative with whose a young woman you were, she's referring to marriage with Boaz. In fact, the word rest that Naomi uses here is the same Hebrew word that she uses back in chapter 1, verse 9, when she's encouraging both Ruth and Orpah, her sister, to return to their families in Moab. And she says, the Lord uh, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. She's saying, go back home and find rest, monowak in the Hebrew. In other words, go back to Moab and make a home for yourselves by finding husbands. It's the same phrase that she's applying here to the idea of Ruth actually proposing marriage, as we'll see, to Boaz, which is apparently a plan that Naomi's no doubt been working on for some time now, as Boaz continues to show noticeable kindness and affection toward Ruth throughout the harvesting season. And so now, as that season is winding down, Naomi seizes the opportunity to share her plan with Ruth because she knows that for the first time since the harvest began, Boaz is about to be alone because the next phase of the harvest season was winnowing, which was the the process of separating the grain from the husks or the holes of the plants, otherwise known as chaff. And so the grain was first crushed, which separated it from the now empty holes and yet at that point it's still all mixed up together in a a giant pile on the threshing floor so the farmer would then toss the wheat and chaff into the air one scoop at a time and since the holes the chaff was lighter than the grain itself the wind would blow the chaff away it was an effective way of separating the wheat from the chaff but it was also very time consuming and so to speed the process up the farmers would generally do their winnowing at night because that's when the westerly winds would pick up. And since the threshing floor was located on the east side of the city, the westerly winds were the most effective in carrying the chaff away. And because they were also located outside, typically the threshing floors were located outside of the villages and cities, they were vulnerable to thieves at night. And so the farmers, after finishing their winnowing for the evening, they would commonly sleep right there, on the threshing floor against the mound of grain in order to protect their harvest. And, of course, Naomi knew all of that. And so she devises a plan for Ruth to approach Boaz at night when he's all alone at just the right time after he's finished eating and drinking and laid down for the night. In other words, after he's relaxed and in good spirits. And then she tells Ruth to do something that sounds strange to us. She says, go and uncover his feet and lie down and he'll tell you what to do. But look, in that culture, this was a gesture that was clearly understood as an act of total and utter submission. This would be Ruth saying to Boaz in no uncertain terms, I am offering myself to you, my entire life to you, everything that I have, all that I am, I offer it to you. It's actually a beautiful foreshadowing of the relationship between Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and every human soul who would ever offer themselves to Him in complete submission. And yet just as beautiful is Ruth's humble response to Naomi's instructions because remember Ruth doesn't really understand any of this at this point and she simply says to Naomi all that you say I will do it's as if in that moment Ruth understood that her entire life all of the hardship. All of the struggle and uncertainty, even the rejection she faced at times, it was all learning, it was all experience, it was all growth that was preparing her for a whole new life that she was about to embark upon. Even this moment where Naomi tells Ruth to wash therefore and anoint yourself. That's what people did in antiquity to prepare themselves for a life-changing event, as we see in Exodus 2:5 and 29:4. It's what they did to prepare for the consummation of a marriage, which we see in 2 Samuel eleven two, it's also what people did to end their time of mourning, which we see with King David in 2 Samuel twelve twenty, and of course with Ruth here in our story. You see, Ruth's entire life, the meaning behind all of it ultimately was preparing her for a new life, and it's the same for us today. This life is meant to prepare you for the next, right? But, but how? How do we prepare in this life for eternity? Well, the answer is expressed perfectly in Ruth's response to Naomi. All that you say, I will do. Okay? Naomi represents the Word of God here, preparing Ruth for her Redeemer. And Ruth's response is exactly how we are to respond to God's Word today. You understand, God has given us His own words written down as holy scriptures. not just Listen, it's not just to help us navigate this life. We're given His word to prepare us for the next life. How? By teaching us how to follow Him, how to worship Him, how to serve Him, how to glorify Him, how to be like Him. All things that we will all be doing for all of eternity. That's why trying to to modify or modernize God's word to somehow better fit our modern culture and popular cultural sensibilities is so patently ridiculous. And yet we treat God's word like it's nothing more than a commentary on the best practices for human behavior in contemporary society. No. No, it is the very knowledge of the almighty All-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, eternal, immutable, holy, righteous, just creator of the universe who was and is and is to come, which he breathed out of himself, endowing us with his own sacred words. Why? So that you and I could know him personally to teach us how to be in a relationship with this living God because that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity after this life. Yet we've decided in much of the modern church that the holy word of God that he exhaled for us so that we could know him, we've decided that it's okay for us to reinterpret his words to mean something different, something more in line with the political and moral leanings of modern culture. It is the very height of arrogance to believe it's okay to change his word to fit our lives today instead of changing our lives to fit his word. You see, there's only one appropriate response to God's holy word. It's not to keep the parts we like and reject the parts we don't like. It's not to modify it to fit our personal preferences or to try and update the parts we deem as no longer culturally relevant. No, there's only one appropriate response to this holy, sacred word of God. And that response is, all that you say, I will do. And yet that very response has become offensive. Today, even to many in the church, although the reality is, if we're being honest, it's not a problem exclusive to the modern church. Peter warned the church in the first century, "...there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words." Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Second Peter two, one through3. When it came to this word of God, Peter wasn't pulling any punches. Why so harsh? Well because of what is at stake. The church itself, because as soon as we begin following many different versions of the gospel within the church, that is the moment we begin to fracture, which is precisely what we see in the American church today. Okay, the the church was never meant to be a melting pot of ideas and alternate gospels where it's safe or okay to manipulate the message of Christ until it fits our personal preferences or the inclinations of pop culture at any given point in history. But that's exactly what is happening in many elements of the church today. Bible scholar David Garland wrote, the danger of Christianity becoming an amalgam of various beliefs and practices is always real as the intellectual and spiritual fashions of the day exert their influence. But I can't think of any time in history that that's more true than now. Scottish Bible scholar James Stewart once described what was happening in much of the modern church as a vague theism plus a liberal humanist picture of Jesus plus a dash of Judaic legalism, the whole being compounded with a certain culture consciousness, a considerable infusion of humanitarian benevolence, and perhaps even a secularizing of the kingdom of God. Okay? People are making up all kinds of new rules about which parts of the gospel apply to us today and which parts do not. And if you don't follow their new take on the gospel as far as they're concerned, you're disqualified from being a part of the true church because you're nothing more than a narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, arrogant simpleton who will wither away into the wrong side of history, forgotten and irrelevant. So let me get this straight. After 16 centuries of biblical orthodoxy guiding the church of Jesus Christ, we've now decided it's time for our doctrine and theology to change based on the social and political moorings of popular culture in the West. It's breathtaking, and yet it is the reality that is facing the American church today, and it's going to continue to spread as long as our culture continues down the path it is currently on, because much of the church has its roots firmly embedded in popular culture rather than in the Word of God. Listen, it's okay. It's okay to feel the tension that God's Word can create in your life. Uh, The truth is, I wrestle deeply deeply with certain passages of scripture. But at the end of the day, there's only one response to his word that is going to prepare you for the rest of your eternity. And that response is, all that you say, I will do. Pastor and author Jack Wellman once said, Jesus is the head of the church. He expects his body to cooperate. Let's keep reading verses 6 through 13. and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And Now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he will not, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So Ruth honors her word to obey Naomi's words, her instructions on how to approach Boaz as she goes down to the threshing floor and watches from the shadows as Boaz eats and drinks his fill. The phrase, and his heart was merry, was an ancient uh, Hebrew idiom, a common saying that described a state of well-being, even uh, euphoria by those who had eaten and drunk well. And so Boaz, no doubt satisfied with a good day's work, with a belly full of good food and and not in a drunken stupor by any means, but certainly feeling the effects of the wine. He lays down and drifts into a deep sleep. And so Ruth comes to him quietly and lays down as she softly uncovers his feet. And at midnight, probably due to the cool night air on his uncovered feet, it says Boaz was startled. The Hebrew word literally means to tremble, uh, which may well have meant he was shivering from the cold. And so he wakes up, only to find this woman lying there who wasn't there before. Bible scholar Daniel Block comments, given the spiritual climate in the period of the judges, which you'll remember is when this was happening, given the spiritual climate in the period of the judges, an average Israelite might have welcomed the night visit of a woman, interpreting her present uh, presence as an offer of sexual favors, but not so Boaz. And interestingly, I was reading in the ancient Aramaic translation of the book of Ruth. It's called the Targum Ruth. Uh, it expands on this encounter between Ruth and Boaz. It says, But she restrained, uh, but he restrained his desire and did not approach her, just as Joseph the righteous did, who refused to approach the Egyptian woman, the wife of his master, just as Paltiel Barlaish the pious did, who placed a sword between himself and Michael, daughter of Saul, wife of David, whom he refused. To reproach. So Boaz, once again showing his godly character, does not violate Ruth, but rather accepts from her what amounts to a proposal of marriage, which is extraordinary when you consider the fact that Ruth is a lowly servant, and Boaz, the master. Ruth is an uninvited visitor, Boaz is in his own domain. Ruth is a woman. Boaz is a man. Ruth is a foreigner. Boaz is an Israelite. And yet she says to him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. To spread your wings over someone in common Hebrew usage was a known saying. It's referred to as a euphemistic idiom. It was for marriage, which is seen throughout the Old Testament scripture, by the way. And furthermore, the gesture of a man covering a woman with his garment was a symbolic act in ancient Near Eastern custom that signified the establishment of a brand new relationship and the declaration of a husband to provide for his future wife. This is Ruth offering herself, all of herself, her heart, her dreams, her mind, her body, her future, her life, everything to Boaz. It is a shocking turn of events for Ruth to do what she did would have been so counter to the culture at the time for a lowly servant a foreign widowed woman poor without anything to offer but herself to come to this rich powerful Israelite man and do what she did, no one would have understood it. And yet it is a truly bold and beautiful picture of exactly what we are supposed to do. To come to Christ with nothing but ourselves, so unqualified, so undeserving, and yet offer ourselves, our very lives to Him. You see, this life is meant to be your offering to God. Okay, this life on earth, it was never meant to satisfy you. It was meant to satisfy Him. And yet one of the wonderful benefits of satisfying God by offering your life to Him is the fact that that offering is the most satisfying thing you could ever do for yourself. So yes, there is self-satisfaction involved, but that's not the point. The meaning of this life is not your personal fulfillment. It is His which is why his will, which we find in his word, is what we should base every single decision in this life on, rather than our personal feelings and personal desires. And I know, I know we all agree with that in theory, but in practice, we tend to actually live much differently. So many of us, we, we spend our lives, even as believers, primarily focused on ourselves, believing that once we've lifted ourselves to a a certain standard of living or a certain level of self-gratification, then maybe we can give something meaningful to God out of our excess and by doing so achieve some kind of healthy balance in our lives, a balance between giving to God and taking care of ourselves, as if those two things are mutually exclusive. And of course, for most people, we never actually attain to whatever that level is, that standard that we think we need to be happy, to be satisfied in order to give to God what we know we should. So we just keep on striving for more. And all the while, we're focused, whether we realize it or not, squarely on ourselves. And left unchecked, living that way becomes an insatiable drive toward consumption. It is an appetite for self-satisfaction, which, by the way, at the end of the day, actually produces the very opposite in us. It's a fact. The constant pursuit of self ultimately produces self-loathing, dissatisfaction with life, and deep-seated feelings of unfulfillment. The idea that we can consume our way to satisfaction and fulfillment is a hollow promise. It is a soulless pursuit that leaves people broken, dysfunctional, burned out, and disillusioned with their lives. It's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35, because we're more blessed. We are more satisfied when we give than when we receive, which is antithetical to the humanistic philosophies of this world. And yet that's exactly what our culture, listen, even our church culture is shoving down our throats today, that being satisfied means having enough to ensure that there's never any want in our lives, that it is desirable to never lack anything, and that somehow we're being foolish when we intentionally risk our comfort and security and the comfort and security of our families by giving everything away to God that it's negligent to not earn as much as possible or amass as much as we can, that somehow we're less caring toward our loved ones if we intentionally do anything that may put our safety or their safety at risk. And yet inherently as Christians, I think most of us know that's wrong. I think we know deep down that God created us for something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than what we've settled for and try to convince ourselves is right. Because listen, we willingly and often enthusiastically not only applaud, but we financially support young missionary families with very small children who move into extremely dangerous parts of the world where they can be killed just for sharing the gospel. Why would we fund people's unimaginable irresponsibility if we really believe that putting your family at risk for the sake of God's calling on your life was unimaginably irresponsible? We wouldn't do that. We write entire books and make movies about those who become martyrs as they live out their purpose to the fullest. We celebrate people who turn down comfortable and safe lives in order to work in the slums of the world, giving their entire lives to helping the most vulnerable among us. We call those people heroes, giants of the faith because of the sacrifices they make and the results we see from their lives because I think deep down, we know that living with that kind of abandoned god is the most fulfilling life that we could ever live even though so many of us are unwilling to actually live that way those are the kind of lives that we often only dream about lives that seem so far from the reality of our own and so we make excuses for ourselves Because we believe that we don't have the background or the skills or the resources or the qualifications to achieve the extraordinary. Listen to me. Ruth didn't have the background. She didn't have the skills or the resources or the qualifications to achieve great things for God either. In fact, all that she had was herself. And so that's what she offered. And it turns out that is all that God needs to accomplish great things in your life as well. He simply asks us to stop trying to satisfy ourselves with every moment of our lives and instead focus on satisfying Him by offering our lives. All that we have, all that we are, offer it to Him and then you know what happens? He takes care of the rest, which happens, by the way, to be the most satisfying life you could ever live. The one spent not trying to satisfy yourself. Henry Blackaby said, he, Jesus, has a right to interrupt your life. He's Lord. When you accepted him as Lord, you gave him the right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So she lay down at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Can you see how when when Ruth offers herself to Boaz, she just gives what she has, which is herself. How immediately can you see how she's blessed and provided for? That's how it works. You want satisfaction in this life? Then give your life away. And you will be blessed and provided for Like no other life you could ever imagine. So Ruth comes back to Naomi. She tells her everything that happened. And Naomi says, wait, my daughter, till you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Can you imagine the sense of anticipation that Ruth and Naomi must have been feeling in that moment? There was a promise from Boaz, and yet also a stipulation because there was another relative who was closer a closer relation to the family than Boaz, which meant according to the Leverett laws, that other relative had the the first right of refusal, so to speak, when it came to marrying Ruth. So it's not a done deal. Naomi and Ruth had to wait to see how the matter would turn out, and unlike Boaz, who they have a strong, close working relationship with at this point, they know his character, they know his integrity... We don't know how well, if at all, they know this other relative. And so the anticipation, uh, it must have been all-consuming as Ruth waits for this whole new life of hers to begin with nothing more that she can do but wait for Boaz to come and get her. B.B. Warfield once said, "...our faith itself, though it be the bond of our union with Christ through which we receive all His blessings, is not our Savior." We have but one Savior, and that one Savior is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing we are and nothing that we can do enters in the slightest measure into the ground of our acceptance with God. Jesus did it all. There was nothing more for Ruth to do but to offer herself to Boaz and then wait with great anticipation for him to come to her, which again is the very picture of how it should be. This life is meant to be lived in anticipation of the next. In fact, we should be consumed with anticipation for the life that is coming after this life, to the point that everything we do in this life is done in consideration of the next that's why Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew six nineteen through 21. The fact is, this world is not our home, which means every single Christian should be homesick in this world but not of it always living in anticipation of what is yet to come listen when you live like that it affects every part of your life in the here and now because you're no longer looking to this world to make you happy or satisfied or fulfilled which i'm just telling you makes for a much more enjoyable experience on this planet once you realize this isn't your ultimate destination and yet, if you live like this is all that there is, which I believe is what most Christians do today, then you are going to struggle your entire lifetime on this earth with dissatisfaction and unmet expectations and even hopelessness that points along the way as you progressively realize that not everything you desire in this life is going to be fulfilled in this life. It's not And so look, the the truth of the matter is, for most of us, when we're unhappy or feeling unfulfilled or unsatisfied, we don't actually need our lives to change. We need our perspective to change. We need to take our focus off of ourselves and off of this life, understanding that this life was never meant to satisfy you anyway. Only Jesus can do that. And when you get that settled within yourself, you'll begin living with great anticipation of the next life, in His presence for all of eternity. In a point of fact, you will enjoy this life all the more, knowing that your time here is merely preparing you for what comes next, which makes it easy to give everything that you have and all that you are to Him while you're here, because that's where all of this ends up anyway. You, being with Him Forever. And that, that is the meaning of life. Let's pray.